funding for NJ Spotlight News provided by the members of the New Jersey Education Association, making public schools great for every child, and RWJ Barnabas Health. Let's be healthy together. Tonight on NJ Spotlight News, New Jersey Palestinian families watch and wait as the six-day truce between Israel and Hamas comes to a close. But once the fighting continues, what does it mean for their loved ones still stranded in Gaza? Hopeless. I mean, this is the most cruel war ever seen in my life. And that's what's really like, you know, if you ask me why or how do I feel, I'm devastated. Plus, home grow. The governor signaling he's open to allowing you to grow recreational cannabis at home. It will not disrupt the industry in any significant way. Um, it's not something that the, any of the sort of corporate cannabis folks should be worried about. Also, it's day 118 of the RWJ nurses strike with no end in sight as the hospital reveals it's paid over 120 million for their replacements and building an electric school bus fleet. Environmentalists looking to replace the more than 10,000 diesel buses, but at whose cost? We're running tight right now with our budget. So that added money is not feasible for us. NJ Spotlight News begins right now. From NJPBS Studios, this is NJ Spotlight News with Brianna Venozzi. Good evening and thanks for joining us on this Wednesday night. I'm Brianna Venozzi. Negotiators are working feverishly toward another potential extension of the truce between Israel and Hamas, now in its sixth and final day, with a key mediator in Qatar telling national news outlets they're optimistic another extension will be announced. Hamas released 81 hostages, primarily women and children, during the first five days of the pause in fighting, while Israel freed 180 Palestinian prisoners as part of the deal. The Israeli military said today it believes there are still an estimated 159 hostages being held in Gaza, taken during the October 7th terror attack by Hamas, in which roughly 1,200 Israelis were brutally murdered. News of another extension comes as Hamas releases another set of hostages today, with at least one American citizen expected to be among them. And while the flow of aid has increased to Gaza, the U.N. secretary says it's not nearly enough for the two million Palestinians who are living in a humanitarian crisis. More than 14,000 Palestinians have been killed by the Israeli military in the war, mostly women and children. That's according to the Gaza Health Ministry. Senior correspondent Brenda Flanagan caught up with one Palestinian New Jersey man who spoke with her at the beginning of this conflict and whose list of family members killed is only growing longer. Personally, I would love to see a permanent ceasefire. I can't imagine going through this cycle again. But Amjad Abukwik says it's still hard to keep his mind on work in his Patterson pharmacy, even with a ceasefire in effect. He's lost at least nine family members in the conflict, and the remaining ones in Gaza struggle to survive. He says dozens of relatives who fled bombing in the north now shelter for safety in crammed apartments, cooking over cinder block stoves. The women and children sleep inside the apartment. The men sleep in the staircase. 
Imagine you have 50, 60 people living in one bedroom apartment for the last 50 days. They can't even flush how the heck they use the bathroom. They're lucky. Behind them, bombed out buildings dominate a ravaged landscape. Food remains scarce and people scramble for drinking water. Thousands live in tents. Amjad's family, meanwhile, is using the ceasefire to reunite living relatives. They charge cell phones when they can, and Amjad tries to text every day. He tears up when asked how he feels. Hopeless. I mean, this is the most cruel war ever seen in my life. And that's what's really like, you know, if you ask me why or how do I feel, I'm devastated. The 54-year-old pharmacist came to the U.S. in 1988, raised a thriving family of five in Patterson, and named his pharmacy Shifa after the Gazan hospital where he was born. Israeli forces stormed Shifa Hospital while Amjad's namesake business prospers. He feels helpless but watches news obsessively. I've had many challenges in my life, I had many issues going on in my life, personal business and so on. But this has been the most devastating time I've ever experienced myself. And as, as much as I try to get myself out of this mode, I can't. Even my kids ask me, Dad, you just have to stop watching. They have, I, can't, I feel guilty. The question, even if the current ceasefire continues and all of the hostages are returned, what happens then to the individual families, to all of Gaza? Right now, we're trying to save people's life. That's really, if, if, if you ask me, what would I like to see out of this? Stop the violence, stop the killing, stop the murdering. Amjad says he hopes for peace, but he's not confident. With political hostility so inflamed, he's even hesitant to wire cash to family in Gaza. One of my cousins called me, Amjad, can you send us some money? I said, I can't. If I send some money, FBI's going to be knocking on my door right now. In the end, even if there is a diplomatic solution, the logistics remain. The scale of, 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 of what's go the destruction in Gaza is unimaginable. None of my family members' homes is left in North Gaza. They're all gone. They have no home to go back to. They have no business to go back to. They have no school to go back to. They simply have nothing to go back to. Even so, rebuilding houses is easier than healing so many families' broken hearts. I'm Brenda Flanagan, NJ Spotlight News. Well, recreational cannabis has been legal in the state for more than two years, but it's still a crime if you want to grow it yourself, despite a number of attempts by lawmakers to push through a homegrown bill. On Monday, Governor Murphy signaled he's open to the idea, something he's only implied in the past. But what will it take politically to get there? Senior political correspondent David Cruz reports. In the time it's taken for the New Jersey cannabis market to get up and running, you could have grown your household's very own supply. But that would be illegal and subject you to five years in prison. After almost three years... Is this the cannabis future we all imagined? If you're a small business and you get a license to open a retail dispensary, you can only buy your wholesale product from like four or five giant corporations. Some of these companies have operated here in New Jersey for more than a decade. They've been operating medical marijuana companies and they've charged 60 and $70 an eighth for more than 10 years. That's $500 an ounce, and most regular users will tell you that the quality is not top shelf. If this is your medicine, $500 an ounce starts to add up. 
in most states where weed is legal to buy, there's an allowance for a certain amount of homegrown. But here in Jersey, that's a felony. Activist Jay Lassiter and others have pushed for legalized homegrown for years. We're still fighting for homegrown, which is available in every other state. And I believe that's a very low-hanging fruit. So the fact that Trenton politicians still haven't gotten around to doing anything about it yet, um, I think it proves just how sort of dysfunctional Trenton is and their inability to actually accomplish really easy stuff that would help a lot of people. So when Governor Murphy recently told News 12 that he was open-minded about supporting homegrown, it raised hopes. I would bet if I were a betting man that down the road that that's exactly what where this would land. I understand having said that why it wasn't in our initial regs because I think there, there's a rightful um, objective to get this industry up on its feet uh, and, and make sure that the folks who are in this as a matter of commerce are successful and again with a huge amount of focus on equity. Except the governor open-minded or not, doesn't really post the bills necessary to allow for that. The Senate president does, and he says allowing home cultivation would impact the state's still nascent cannabis industry. Senator Vin Gopal's been working on getting the Senate president to post a bill. This is my bill. It has bipartisan support. I've talked to the Senate president uh, about a week or two ago. Uh, he's, he's still not there. I'm going to continue to lobby him that this is not going to impact the industry. I appreciate the governor coming out. Um, home grow can impact a lot of uh, folks, especially medical patients. Senator Troy Singleton has a bill that would legalize homegrown for medical patients. He says the high prices are just unacceptable. I think we've tried to give the CRC, the Cannabis Regulatory Commission, excuse me, an opportunity to, through its uh, regulatory powers, to try and put some pricing uh, controls in place. And I think now, quite honestly, I think it's now time for the legislature, because I don't think the CRC has done um, enough in that regard to maybe interject uh, some price controls in this space. Try getting that past the Senate president, who remains the industry's biggest champion, despite skeptics now wondering aloud how the equity and access promised by legal weed has yet to be delivered. I'm David Cruz, NJ Spotlight News. The state is still trying to get the word out about ramped up access to naloxone, the powerful opioid overdose antidote that's helped save lives as the epidemic continues sweeping the nation. Last year, the Murphy administration started a first of its kind program, allowing anyone in New Jersey to get free naloxone from a pharmacy without the fear of law enforcement getting involved. Yet experts say the public is still mostly unaware of its effectiveness and how to administer the drug to someone in need. Senior correspondent Joanna Gagas reports on another effort to change that. So we know that this person needs Narcan. You've gone to the AED cabinet, you come back with this, but you don't know how to use it. Students, faculty, and community members attended a Montclair State University training this week where they learned how to administer the opioid overdose reversal drug Narcan. And spray. Press the red plunger firmly. That's it. We've done it. They were taught to look for telltale signs of an overdose being caused by opioids. We see what we call pinpoint pupils. So teeny tiny little pinpoint pupils that remain fixed at that pinpoint size, uh, regardless of the amount of light that's present or taken away. Also blue lips and no signs that the person is breathing, no chest rising and falling. If you were to take a whole bunch of opiates, 
are opioids, your breathing would slow potentially to a rate that is no longer going to sustain life. Okay, so that is what's going to kill someone who is overdosing on an opiate. In 2022, just last year, over 100,000 people have died from a drug-involved overdose. Right, so a, a really staggering amount. And just in New Jersey, about 3,000 people have died from an overdose. So we've really been in the midst of this crisis for a couple of years now. Um, and despite funding pouring in and some interventions that have been implementing, we have not been able to make the kinds of progress that I think everybody wants to make. Which is why there's a renewed focus on harm reduction efforts across the state, according to Montclair State University professor Svetlana Spiegel. Clients come in, they engage in services, and after a little bit they drop out because they're not able to sustain sobriety, right? So if abstinence is required for continuous service engagement, they're going to drop out. Um, and harm reduction allows them to say, well, you're welcome here. We are welcoming you as you are. We want you to be honest with us about your use, and we will help you to the extent that we can. To help even further, the university is offering a new graduate level harm reduction certificate. Which is called Harm Reduction Approaches to Substance Use. And the goal in this certificate was to address a gap in training in human service professionals. New Jersey is really going through a transition point. I think the entire field is going through a transition where we were seeing a lot of people talk about naloxone and other harm reduction measures as a way to enable people to use more drugs or to use more often. And that's really just not true. And so we are seeing now that people are beginning to embrace um, what is an evidence-based measure to prevent the loss of life. Some attendees voicing concern about the legal implications of calling for help. If someone were to call the police for an overdose, would there be any repercussions for someone else using, for example, um, for that person with them <clears throat> to get in trouble? I have a friend that passed away a few years ago because the person he was using with was scared to call the police. Our number one priority would be to assist that person and do our best to save that person's life. Here on campus, we have a medical amnesty policy, which states that you're not going to be put through this the university conduct system if you call for medical assistance for yourself or for someone else who needs it after taking drugs or alcohol. A shift in tone from the war on drugs to a helping hand that's waiting for someone to take it. I'm Joanna Gagas, NJ Spotlight News. Former State Senator Bob Gordon is stepping down from his position on New Jersey Transit's Board of Directors when his term expires next week. The longtime public servant was one of the authors of a sweeping reform law Governor Murphy signed in 2018 overhauling the transportation agency and was considered an advocate for commuters. Gordon's background as former chair of the Senate Transportation Committee made him an outspoken member of the board who often asked pointed questions and pressed for transparency. He's the third person to leave the New Jersey Transit's board this year, all of whom were appointed as part of that reform law. I asked Bob Gordon why he's leaving and what it means for commuters. It's great to see you. Thanks for coming on the show. So you served four years on the board for New Jersey Transit. Now you told the governor it's time for you to step down. Why? Well, um, you know, I, I wanted to complete my term uh, and I have uh, taken on some new responsibilities. I've uh, joined a, an organization called Stevens and Lee Public Affairs, which is a government relations firm. Uh, it's an opportunity that will allow me to continue keeping my hand in 
public policy and uh, working on the issues that I I care about, and I really feel I need to give that the, the time uh, that it requires. Do you feel like New Jersey Transit has achieved what you laid out when you wrote the legislation to bring about more transparency and start the process of reforming an agency that hadn't been through that in decades? Uh, well, you're right. This uh, the, the bill that Senator Weinberg and I authored, uh, enacted in 2018, was the first revision since uh, the creation of New Jersey Transit in, in 1979. We were naive in that. Uh, I, don't, I, I think we didn't appreciate uh, that every organization, including New Jersey Transit, is, is resistant to, to change. But I do think that we, we made a great deal of progress. First of all, we expanded the board uh, to uh, include a group of people with a great breadth of experience and very relevant experience. Um, we, uh, we created a board in which there is more transparency uh, and I think accountability. And uh, while the board had, you know, has not yet established the kind of partnership with senior management that I, I wanted to see, um, the, the board has uh, on a number of occasions really shaped policy. Are you worried about your voice uh, now being missing from that discussion? Well, listen, I'm, I'm not uh, essential to the operations of New Jersey Transit. There will be others, I, I hope, who will be appointed who will uh, fulfill that function. There are some great people on the board now who I'm sure will, will continue their, their good work and asking questions and probing and, and uh, you know, demanding uh, answers uh, from the staff. Top challenge that you can name for us? Well, in fiscal 26, uh, all of the financial projections show uh, a deficit, essentially a fiscal cliff of uh, over $900 million. Um, and there needs to be, the, the organization needs to uh, fill that hole and ideally, find a, a long-term stable source uh, of funding for the organization. There's now only going to be one member left who is a commuter, uh, someone who uses the transportation system. Um, the other members, yourself included, have now all either not been reappointed or have chosen to leave. We certainly hear from our, our customers. There are a number of people who are at our commenting at all of our meetings and letting us know what's you know what didn't happen uh, on a particular train that should have uh, but I, I do think it's important for the board to have people who are uh, have a real world experience um, riding the rails or the, or the buses former state senator and new jersey transit board chair uh, member bob gordon thank you so much my pleasure good to see you in our Spotlight on Business report tonight, the Robert Wood Johnson University Hospital nurses strike is now heading into its fifth month and it's costing both sides of the picket line big money. More than 1,700 nurses who walked off the job in the beginning of August have been without pay or health benefits. Meanwhile, the hospital says it spent more than $120 million so far on replacement nurses with the highest levels of certification to keep the facility operating. Striking nurses are waiting for the hospital to respond to their latest contract proposal submitted just last 
last week. A spokesperson for the nurses' union says the proposal is similar to what the group has been asking for since the strike began. That's staffing levels related to nurse-patient ratios and getting rid of penalties for nurses who call out sick. The union said there's no deadline for the hospital to respond and there are no mediation or negotiations scheduled right now. Turning to Wall Street, stocks are still on pace for a big November rally. Here's how the markets close today. Support for the Business Report provided by Rowan University. Educating New Jersey leaders. Partnering with New Jersey businesses. Transforming New Jersey's future. U.S. Coast Guard this week is responding to reports of tar balls washing ashore in Monmouth County. The tiny dark colored balls of oil were first spotted on Monday. That's according to the environmental group Clean Ocean Action. It was in a roughly six mile area of Long Branch and Monmouth Beach near Seven Presidents Park. The Coast Guard says shoreline inspections from Seabright to Long Branch are underway and so far no oil sheen has been spotted in nearby waters. It's unclear what the source of the tar balls may be. They're typically remnants of oil spills, but they can also originate from natural steeps. Those are places where oil and gas have naturally entered the ocean and slowly leak out of the ground. State and county authorities are also assisting in this investigation, and they're asking anyone who sees tar balls or oil in the area to contact the Coast Guard's National Response Center. The push to go electric isn't just targeted for personal vehicles. State environmental leaders also want school districts to tap into federal and state funding to electrify their bus fleets. They argue diesel school buses pump pollution into the air and expose students to the harmful fumes. There's already a couple hundred electric buses on the roads in New Jersey. But as Ted Goldberg reports, there's a lot of work and money needed to phase out the 10,000 existing school buses in the state. Electric school buses could soon be coming to a district near you. Advocates say it's a win for the environment and for the lungs of anybody who rides them. We do not want the next generation of New Jersey school children to be breathing in dirty diesel fumes. It's bad for their lungs and it even impacts school performance. The kids are breathing this in, the neighborhoods are breathing this in. I was in uh, elementary school in the 60s, so I remember the old school buses that, that did spew out the uh, diesel fuel um, in the exhaust. Trenton Mayor Reed Goshora was one of the speakers at an informational luncheon aimed at people interested in turning their fleet of diesel-powered school buses into electric. This cuts down on it by using electrical vehicles, and so we're excited about the opportunity to apply for uh, replacement of up to uh, 200 or more uh, school buses in the city of Trenton. It's the coming thing, I guess, and everybody's looking to see what we can do to eliminate diesel fumes. Heather Van Motter oversees more than 40 school buses for the Hopewell Valley Regional School District. She's learning more about state and federal grants to help pay for those buses, which can run more than $400,000 a pop. School buses are about one and a half to two times as expensive as regular buses. Uh, plus the expense of putting in the uh, charging stations. We're running tight right now with our budget, so that added money is not feasible for us. 
It could become more feasible thanks to the bipartisan infrastructure law, which allocates money for electric and clean fuel school buses. The way it's looking, it will be about $1 billion a year, hoping to use the $5 billion up in five years. We need um, grants that are flexible within the contracting laws that New Jersey has. Despite the price tag, EPA employee Lily Black says electric school buses are starting to spread. We're seeing them everywhere from dense metropolitan areas like Newark, Trenton, but then also kind of more rural out in Montana, Wyoming. Rachel Lane works for Student Transportation of America, the second largest private bus contractor in the country. She says making electric school buses widespread poses a few challenges beyond just dollars and cents. There's not a one-size-fits-all solution. It's different from site to site because it depends on how many buses you're charging, what the route characteristics of the buses are, what your utility rate book is, and what how you're trying to minimize your power consumption and your power costs. We're hoping to turn over the entire fleet uh, by 2035. Uh, that's our goal. The question is, um, is there going are there going to be funds? It's very optimistic, but you know it's the same goal that New Jersey Transit has for their electric buses. Governor Phil Murphy recently conditionally vetoed a bill that would give $15 million to school districts for these buses. Environment NJ Director Doug O'Malley says he's confident that lawmakers will fix the bill and help make it a law during the lame duck session. The governor did a conditional veto to ensure that the funding that was being used was FY24 dollars. So it's kind of a, it's a small change, it's a very important one. And we hope the legislature moves on this conditional veto next month. And so this program can get up and rolling by early 24. New Jersey isn't alone in growing electric school buses. Earlier today, New York State announced a $100 million environmental bond for buses running on electricity and clean fuel. In Trenton, I'm Ted Goldberg, NJ Spotlight News. And that's going to do it for us tonight, but make sure to tune in tomorrow night for Chatbox with David Cruz, especially if you're a commuter. David looks at top frustrations for residents using the roads, rails, and buses, and talks to experts about whether commuters should expect fare hikes and toll increases in the new year. That's tomorrow night at 6 p.m. on the NJ Spotlight News YouTube channel. I'm Brianna Venozzi. For the entire NJ Spotlight News team, thanks for being with us. We'll see you right back here tomorrow night. NJM Insurance Group, serving the insurance needs of residents and businesses for more than 100 years. And by the PSCG Foundation.